this issue is one that continues to sort of simmer under the surface. It's the week of April 25th, and welcome to episode 129 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm John Lipsy, NSI Director of Policy, and your guest host this week. If there is one country that is always on the precipice of asserting significant global influence, yet has managed to persist as an enigma on the world stage, it is India. India is a country that is seemingly always undergoing massive change while standing very much in place. And an array of recent events appear to teach us that everything that has ever been true about India remains true. It remains doggedly non-aligned at a moment the world expects it to pick sides, frustrating expectations in the U.S. and the broader West. Its religious tensions are flaring and continue to stress its democratic values. Its relationship with China is dominated by border conflicts and significant distrust. And its economic potential remains at a distance, despite growing integration with the global economy and an often wildly successful diaspora. But perhaps some big changes and a more prominent role for India in the world is closer than we expect. Today, we'll put that question to the test. For this episode, we're excited to have Jeff Smith join us to help us understand the U.S.-India relationship in light of the war in Ukraine and the growing threat from China and what the U.S. can do to bolster ties. Jeff is a research fellow at the Heritage Institution's Asian Studies Center for focusing on South Asia. He has previously written and edited two books. The first, Asia's Quest for Balance, China's Rise and Balancing in the Indo-Pacific, and Cold Peace, China-India Rivalry in the 21st Century. The latter gave him the one of Twitter's best handles, at Cold Peace. Jeff, thank you for joining Fault Lines this week. Thanks for having me on, John. Really happy to be here. We're going to try to cover a lot of ground today. Can you first help give our listeners a quick sense of how India has historically understood its strategic interests and role in the world? Yeah, I think that's very much uh, been an evolution. India gained independence from the British Empire in 1947. And I think for much of the Cold War, its top priority was on internal development and stabilization. India still has tremendous uh, development challenges even today. They were far graver in 1947 and included not just economic development, but but democratic consolidation at home. And India also had, at the outset, a fierce rivalry with neighboring Pakistan over the disputed territory of Kashmir, you know, a, a, a disputed territory over which they fought eventually four conflicts, the first one uh, in the late 1940s, then again, 1965, 1971, and, and 1999. And so India was preoccupied, I would say, first and foremost, by economic development and democratic consolidation. Secondly, its rivalry with Pakistan. And third, eventually, um, a, a rivalry with China. Uh, they had their own border dispute that India inherited from uh, the British, and they fought a, a, a short uh, but intense war over that disputed border in 1962. And so India found itself wedged between two rivals, both with claims on its territory. And so its foreign policy for most of the Cold War was very much guided by uh, these two rivalries, and as a as a result, it largely sought to avoid becoming enmeshed in in the Cold War, in the U.S. Soviet rivalry. Uh, it saw neither the U.S. or the USSR as a direct threat to itself, um, and it 
wanted to avoid being the junior partner, being dragged into these superpower conflicts at a time it, it already had its own problems. And so it tried to remain sort of non-aligned and, and aloof from the Cold War while trying to balance China and, and Pakistan and their growing influence. And eventually that led to a sort of loose alignment with the Soviet Union in the 1970s, uh, in part because the United States, uh, while it had no designs on India, it found itself in a partnership with Pakistan uh, against the Soviet Union. And after China and, and, and the Soviet Union had a falling out, the U.S. also pursued an opening to China in the 1970s. And so India found the U.S. sort of aligned with Pakistan and China. And I think it felt it had no other choice but to sign a, a defense pact with the Soviet Union, even though there was little ideological alignment there. Uh, they, they saw the Soviet Union as a way to, to sort of balance this China-Pakistan-U.S. nexus and, and receive discounted uh, military hardware in the process. And so that that was that sort of set the tone for most of the Cold War and is a, a large reason why India and the U.S. were sort of estranged democracies for most of the Cold War. Um, all of that, of course, was upended by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. India gradually pursued a, a, an opening diplomatically, economically, um, and, and eventually a pretty robust strategic engagement with the U.S., uh, in the early 2000s after the 9-11 terrorist attack. So I think we're in a, a new phase now uh, where India still prioritizes strategic autonomy, if not this strict adherence to, to non-alignment during the Cold War. It's a more flexible conception of, of its interests and, and its autonomy. And now it's sort of pursuing broader engagement with a wide range of powers, including the United States and, and the Quad countries, um, but also maintaining legacy relationships with Russia, Russia and others. And so that's sort of the Cliff's Notes version of, of India and, and how it sees the world and its interests. But we can we can dive more into that moving forward. So I'd like to ask you to speak to India's approach to a couple of key U.S. national security priorities, uh, principally with regard to Russia and China and how important India is to the U.S. achieving its goals there. So when it comes to Russia, of course, we have Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which appears to be starting a period of significant upheaval in the global order. How would you describe India's stance on the invasion uh, at this point? You, know, you spoke to the history of India's relationship with Russia through the period of Soviet Union uh, and now after its collapse. How would you describe its relationship today after this invasion has occurred, um, what's informing that perspective on where are we headed? So India forged a, a very strong defense relationship with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, received heavily discounted military equipment that allowed it to compete with, with China and, and Pakistan. Um, but even at the height of, of their collaboration during the Cold War, it was largely, the relationship was largely limited to the defense arena. And that remains so even today. Um, People-to-people ties are, are, are very limited. India had more students studying in Ukraine prior to the war than it did in Russia. Uh, economic ties today are very limited. I think in 2019, India did $8 billion worth of trade with Russia. It did $150 billion worth of trade with the U.S. But 
the defense relationship, while India did begin diversifying away from Russian imports after the collapse of the Soviet Union and now is a significant purchaser of U.S. arms, Israeli arms, French military platforms, it still does purchase quite a bit from Russia. But more important than that, it's legacy military platforms, its existing stock of fighter jets and tanks and uh, naval uh, frigates are mostly Russian origin. And so it's in some ways tethered to Russia and, and reliant on Russia for servicing of this equipment, for spare parts, for maintenance, um, and for future platforms. Not only is it uh, this legacy hardware, but I think they still very much value the Russia partnership because Russia is willing to provide them with things the United States and no one else can or will, um, including nuclear submarines, which Russia has has leased to India, and the co-development of cruise missiles. And so it, from India's perspective, the defense relationship with Russia is still critically important, even if other aspects of the relationship are not nearly as important as they once were. Um, and even though the two countries find themselves increasingly at odds on India's principal security challenge, which is China. As I mentioned earlier, the, the main impetus for the Soviet-India relationship in the 1970s was that India saw Russia as a way to balance China. And Russia proved to be a sort of reliable defender of India, whether it was at the UN Security Council or whether it was deterring Chinese military action against India. That dynamic has fundamentally changed um, over the past 10 or 20 years the Russia-China relationship has grown far stronger than I think many people anticipated. And it, it increasingly so since the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. I think India is no longer under any illusions that Russia can be a, a reliable partner against China any longer. And so that is, is yet another aspect that has sort of weakened the once strong India-Russia bond. But that Defense dependency remains, as does the sort of legacy loyalty to Russia for, for standing up for India back during the Cold War when India was weak and the U.S. was aligned with Pakistan and China. So you have an older generation of Indian officials that do feel a good sense of, of loyalty to Russia, that do think it was a, a reliable partner for India for a long time. But then you've got this other set of sort of more pragmatic folks who'd say, look, we don't like what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but at a time that we have the Chinese military arrayed at our disputed border, at a time where we just had the first deadly crisis at that border in over 40 years, which was the, a, a clash uh, in the Galwan Valley in 2020, they're in the midst of a crisis with China. We can't afford to alienate Russia at this time, because we know Putin and we know that he's not afraid to play hardball. And we know that, you know, those MiG fighter jets might not get their spare parts next month if we're seen as criticizing Russia too directly. And so some of that sort of fear, some of that aversion and some of that historic loyalty um, 
prompted India to take a sort of fairly neutral approach to the Russia-Ukraine crisis and abstain from condemning Russia uh, at multiple votes at the United Nations. And they've refrained from directly criticizing Russia in their government statements. And that, of course, is concerning to much of the democratic world. You know, why is the world's largest democracy not speaking out what is a clear case of of Russian aggression? Um, and and I would I would sort of counsel that there are these deeper reasons for that, historical, philosophical reasons, um, not just the loyalty to Russia, but also this history of non-alignment means that if you look at military conflicts of decades past, including our own, India tends to take a neutral position and not get involved. That's part of their tradition. So that's not something new and unique that it's doing for Russia. It's actually consistent with their tradition. But I would just say, um, if you read between the lines, you, you also would notice that while India is officially abstaining from criticizing Russia, its statements have definitely become more critical of what Russia is doing in Ukraine without directly calling out Moscow. So calling for an end to the violence, saying that sovereignty and territorial integrity must be respected, um, condemning the killing of civilians in, in, in Bucha. You know, in Indian uh, media outlets have reporters on the ground in Ukraine, and they're broadcasting these images back into India. And, and frankly, they're, they're not playing well from Russia's perspective. And so really, for the first time in recent memory, you have seen a much livelier debate in the Indian press about Russia. And very prominent Indian commentators and experts openly criticizing Russia, um, something that would have been sort of a taboo topic uh, even a couple of years ago. And so officially sort of neutral, but I think if you asked any Indian official or experts, they would tell you that this has been something of a disaster uh, for Russia and frankly for India, because India doesn't want to be put in this position. You know, it doesn't support the invasion, but it doesn't think that it can change Putin's calculation, even if it does speak out against Russia. And it actually, it thinks that Russia is likely to emerge from this weaker, with a weaker defense industrial base, and closer to China, which is what they absolutely are were hoping to avoid. Uh, they think that Russia will emerge more alienated from the West and and more... Uh, looking to embrace China. And I think they're right about that. And from their perspective, that's very bad for their national security interests. And so I think they regret this conflict. They regret what Russia is doing. They regret the consequences, but they're afraid to sort of get out in front and openly condemn Putin because they're not sure how much benefit they're going to get from that, but they do believe they're going to pay a cost for it. So in view of all of that, how has the U.S. approached India during this time? What uh, what should the U.S. be asking of India? And is there something the U.S. Uh, should be doing uh, currently to plot a course for India uh, to or to help India um, make a you know a long term transfer uh, away from reliance on Russia, um, helping it? to develop its own uh, military industrial base or um, helping it to shift its reliance uh, to the West for its uh, security needs. Yeah. I, you know, I, as I said, this process 
is happening. It has been underway uh, for some time. Um, and I think overall, the U.S. has done a pretty good job. Um, India and the U.S. signed a, a 10-year defense pact in 2005, as well as a civil nuclear deal that year. And that's what really sort of opened the floodgates to defense cooperation. And arms sales started in, in 2008. And we've done, I think, just over $25 billion in arms sales to India since then, including some really significant and, frankly, advanced platforms C-17, C-130J, transport aircraft, uh, P-8, Poseidon, uh, surveillance aircraft, Apache helicopters, um, artillery, you know, rifles, drones. I mean, we're we're selling them, uh, you know, a lot of defense equipment now, but they're also uh, usually the top two or three defense importers annually worldwide. And so they, they have to purchase a lot of their defense equipment because they don't produce a lot of it indigenously. And so I think under any circumstances, even the best case scenario, it's, it's unfortunately probably a generations long or decades long endeavor uh, diversifying away from Russia because of those legacy systems in particular, even if they say tomorrow, we're never buying another defense platform from Russia again, they're still going to have 60 to 70% of what exists now requiring some form of cooperation from Russia. You know, we have actually tried to say, look, we can find other Soviet, former Soviet clients that have Russian defense equipment of their own, including Ukraine, including Eastern European countries. Maybe they can help with spare parts and maintenance and supplies. And, and some of that will happen, but it simply can't replace uh, Russia quickly. So even in the best case scenario, it's, it's a very long-term endeavor. What more can the U.S. do? Um, I, I think, unfortunately, our options here are somewhat limited because we have already signed four sort of foundational military cooperation agreements with India just in the last few years related to intelligence sharing, encrypted communications equipment, um, reciprocal access, refueling each other's ships at sea. Um, And then most of the significant defense platforms that India was interested in, it's it's already purchased. Um, And so I do expect the defense trade to continue, though maybe not quite at the same rate as it it did in the previous decade. I think the hang-up is on... There are platforms and, and technologies that India would like from us that, that the United States either deems too sensitive or by law uh, cannot sell India, like nuclear submarines. Um, jet engine technology is another one. Uh, co-development of advanced systems is something we would like to do with India, but that's something that will likely take another decade before we've perfected it. We launched the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative back in 2015 in an effort to jumpstart India-U.S. co-development of defense hardware. We're now seven years later, and we haven't been successful with a single project. Um, And so I think we just have to recognize that the process is not going to move as quickly as we like. But so long as the trends are continue shifting in the right direction toward greater geopolitical alignment with the U.S., away from Russia, toward greater diversification, 
over time, I think naturally that will reduce Russia's leverage uh, on India, over India. And I think that process will be accelerated by the growing uh, proximity between Moscow and Beijing. I think that maybe more than anything else uh, is uh, coloring Indian perceptions of Russia and its reliability. But also it's, it's growing trust and comfort with the U.S. You know, it, it now does have what it thinks is a reliable partner in the U.S., which, which can balance Chinese influence. In fact, maybe the only country that can help to balance China's growing power and influence. And, and the Pakistan factor, which was once a, a, a major stumbling block in India-U.S. ties, has, has gradually dissipated and I think is no longer... Uh, preventing us from from realizing some of these shared strategic interests in the in the Indo-Pacific. The shared concern for China um, has certainly been a key factor in, in keeping uh, the U.S.-India relationship stitched together, even when it uh, was most uh, strained. Uh, India's capacity to balance China is um, has long been of of, of deep um, uh, interest uh, for the United States. Um, you literally wrote the book on India, the India-China rivalry. Describe that rivalry uh, for us. Where does it stand today? We have a, a long history of border, border disputes, uh, significant conflict uh, over those disputes, recent uh, military uh, skirmishes, continual uh, posturing and positioning for territorial gain. But we've also seen India take uh, significant actions to cont- curtail um, the infiltration of, of Chinese technology in the country, many other measures uh, to respond to, to what it uh, clearly sees as a growing threat from China. Um, help us understand that rivalry in greater depth and, and where it stands today. Yeah. So the abridged version, um, it, it, because it is a very complex relationship, is Rivalry was kicked off in 1962 when China launched a, a, a short border war and ended up seizing some of the territory that was disputed between the two countries. That set the tone for a very contentious relationship in the decades to follow, even though they mostly did not come to blows at the border after that. The relationship remained very tense and filled with distrust. One aggravated by China's uh, patronage toward Pakistan, which began shortly after the 1962 border war. Um, The two countries did have some success in the 1990s uh, with diplomatic and economic openings and signing a series of agreements to manage the border dispute peacefully. Uh, They were largely effective, I would say, in doing so. Through the 1990s and, and 2000s, the border remained relatively calm in that period. But around the early 2010s, uh, a few things, China began changing and several trends were set in motion that really aggravated the China-India rivalry. One is that China just became more belligerent, more nationalistic, more aggressive across multiple foreign policy fronts. And we saw that in the South China Sea, the East China Sea with Taiwan, with U.S.-China relations, and we saw it with China-India relations. And the belligerent rhetoric, eventually the wolf warrior diplomacy, 
just this more combative, confrontational, diplomatic posture. The second trend was that China's power and influence began expanding into India's traditional neighborhood. Uh, China had a very marginal uh, footprint in South Asia and the Indian Ocean region, with the exception of Pakistan, uh, for most of the 20th century and, and even the in the 2000s. But in the 2010s, that began to change. And as China was going abroad, it began expanding its economic, political, military footprint in countries like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, in the Maldives, in Nepal. Uh, and it did so in ways that, in some cases, reinforced autocratic instincts, uh, undermined democracy, burdened these countries with debt. And it also often found itself um, sort of backing whatever action was opposed to India. And so China and India were, would, would have increasingly been playing this shadow competition out in other regional capitals, backing rival political factions. And India has sort of felt this sense of strategic encirclement um, in, in its own backyard. So that certainly provoked the rivalry. Um, but the third factor, and probably the most important, is, is the intensification of, of the border dispute. And that really began with a series of smaller crises in 2013 and 2014, where Chinese patrols essentially went a few kilometers across the undemarcated line of actual control, set up camp, sparked a crisis. Uh, but through diplomacy, the two sides were able to resolve those without any bloodshed. Um, there was a, a more significant and intense crisis at the border in 2017, actually along the Bhutan-India-China tri-border area, where the Chinese were extending a road into Bhutanese territory, overlooking a vulnerable sector of India, and Indian troops intervened on Bhutan's behalf and essentially stopped the Chinese military from constructing this road further south. And it led to a very serious standoff, um, unprecedented in many ways, but one that was resolved peacefully. Um, which brings us to 2020 and what has been by far the most serious and deadly border crisis where the Indian uh, Union territory of, of Ladakh meets uh, Tibet in China, there was a very serious standoff, one that devolved into hostilities, and ultimately 20 Indian soldiers were killed in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the Himalayas. And, you know, there weren't many pro-China folks left in New Delhi before that crisis. There are virtually none left anymore. Uh, that had a very significant impact on public perceptions of China, elite perceptions of China, fundamentally hardened the rivalry between the two countries, and also provided greater impetus for India to align even more closely with the U.S., as well as revive the Quad, this quadrilateral grouping of Indo-Pacific democracies with, with India, U.S., Japan, and Australia, and also for India to begin forging stronger bilateral relationships with, with those countries. And so I would say the China-India relationship today remains as, as tense as it has 
at any point in recent memory, you noted that India um, banned several Chinese apps. It's applied much greater scrutiny to proposed Chinese investments. Um, it is in the process of reorienting its military posture, building up infrastructure along the border where China has has enjoyed an advantage for uh, many decades, and just fundamentally viewing China as a existential threat, one even graver than than Pakistan. And India has repeatedly signaled to China that the relationship cannot return to normal until there's a return to normalcy on the disputed border, including the withdrawal of Chinese troops away from the forward positions they, they took when this crisis erupted in 2020. So how far is India willing to or interested in taking uh, this Quad Alliance, what does it mean when it's uh, seeking to pursue the objective of sustaining a free and open Indo-Pacific? What, what does this mean for some concrete issues that the U.S. is most concerned about in terms of Taiwan, this militarization of the South China Sea, uh, this other aggressive activity to China? I think India is helpful on those issues, but its reach is somewhat limited. Taiwan and the South China Sea, South China sea are still a, a far away from India. And while its presence in the region has been growing, it has been doing more naval exercises, the Philippines with Japan, more uh, visits to Vietnam. It it, it is an increasingly relevant player there, but I think it recognizes that's still very much China's backyard. And so it is doing little things to increasingly normalize diplomatic relations with Taiwan um, it is doing things to um, uphold freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. It has called on China to respect the um, UN uh, Arbitration Tribunal Award, which essentially invalidated many of China's claims in the South China Sea and its artificial island building there. Um, and it's generally been committed to the rules-based order that the United States has been trying to promote and protect and in some cases, I would say it's leading by example. I mean, it had its own maritime boundary dispute with Bangladesh uh, rather than trying to resolve it through force like China has. It took it to a U.N. arbitration body. Uh, they ruled mostly in favor of Bangladesh and India accepted the award and the dispute was settled in a responsible manner. And so I think setting the example, speaking out diplomatically condemning China when it is being aggressive, strengthening relations with Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines. I mean, these are all things that generally benefit U.S. interests in the region. But India's impact, I think, will always be greater in in its own neighborhood, in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean, whether that's India's ability to patrol the sea lanes in the Indian Ocean, to project power into the Indian Ocean, to project power along the border with China, which it's doing in a considerable way, and also to manage the competition with China in these sort of battleground states in South Asia, in Sri Lanka, and the Maldives, Nepal, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and sort of helping as to serve as a, a force multiplier in its own backyard where we generally have the same vision for the region and our interests generally align. So we'd be remiss if we didn't speak to some of the 
remaining challenges uh, in the U.S.-India relationship. Modi is uh, at times a controversial figure in the West. India's actions over the last few years in Kashmir, um, ongoing internal religious conflict. Uh, we've seen that, uh, unfortunately, flash significantly uh, in recent days. Please speak to s- some of these key impediments that, that exist that maybe uh, were even um, becoming more prominent uh, prior to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and, and how should we be thinking about these and, and balancing them against uh, India's uh, you know, ongoing uh, Efforts at, at uh, fulfilling its um, uh, its ide- democratic ideals and 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 then the broader strategic uh, landscape uh, and issues that we've just discussed. Yeah, so the Indian sort of domestic politics and what it's been framed as sort of the rise of Hindu nationalism under Modi and the BJP has been getting a lot more attention, I would say, in the Western press, particularly liberal media outlets. Since 2019, uh, really, that's the announcement that India was revoking the autonomous status of Kashmir um, and and turning it into two new union territories, replacing it with two union territories, um, was also a decision that was also followed by a major security crackdown in the valley uh, because they were anticipating terrorist violence. And so there were mass detentions, the arrest of local politicians without trial, uh, that earned India a lot of condemnation in the Western press. And also, I think, a, a growing scrutiny of uh, Hindu nationalism and what they were illiberal rhetoric um, that was coming from local or regional politicians associated with the BJP or, or ministers, though not necessarily from Prime Minister Modi himself. Um, you have seen a I would say much more attention and criticism on this phenomenon in the Western press to date. Uh, But that has not yet translated into really any changes in government policy. I mean, if you look at the Biden administration's approach to India, it has been essentially all in on further developing the strategic partnership while being very muted publicly in airing any concerns about Indian domestic politics. And when Secretary Blinken went to India, he said, look, you know, we both have challenges at home and human rights challenges, and we're going to talk about this issue as equals. Many European governments uh, have, are continuing to embrace India wholeheartedly, you know, strategically embrace India, uh, even as these concerns percolate in the, in, the, in the press and among human rights organizations. And so I would say to date, it actually has not had much change on strategic engagement with India. Um, I think that could change in the future if some of these concerns that are being aired are are eventually realized. The concerns about Muslim-Hindu tensions, about communal violence, about illiberal rhetoric, um, I think for now, some of these fears about the worst case scenarios are still theoretical. But if we were to get, say, different leadership of the BJP, or there was to be sort of an incident that spiraled out of control, which has happened in India's past, I think you could see outbreaks of violence uh, that that would be uh, would rise to the level of affecting strategic ties as well. 
So I would say, you know, for it's a very complex issue that frankly requires its own podcast. But for now, uh, th- this issue is one that continues to sort of simmer under the surface and does risk eventually uh, impacting international relationships. Uh, but for now, most countries, the United States included, sort of remain all in on the, the strategic courtship of India. It's seen as simply too important to the China challenge. It's seen as a relatively responsible actor on the international stage. And I think there is also some hesitance or caution on our part at a time where many are questioning America's own democracy, our own democratic credentials, our own record at home. I think they're questioning not only our responsibility, but our ability to affect change in Indian politics in a country that is historically very averse to foreigners and outsiders getting involved in in what they consider to be their domestic issues. And so there are there are some limits on what what we can do to shape the national narrative and the emerging trends in Indian domestic politics. But there it is a trend that we're watching with some concern. I know you're heading to uh, off to India next week. We should have you back uh, when you return to see what you've learned. As a last question, we'll send you away with this. So look into your crystal ball for us. What will India's role in the world look like uh, 10 or 20 years from now? Um, Are they going to persist as uh, a non-aligned, regionally focused power? Are they, uh, will they, prove to be the global linchpin and kingmaker for the free world? Or do you envision a, uh, India as a preeminent global leader, you know, as, uh, as uh, Admiral Stavridis envisioned in his, his great book, uh, 2034, uh, kind of taking the role of disciplining uh, the unruly children of the U.S. and China? Where do you see, where do you see China headed? Well, I've never been very good at predictions, so take this with a a grain of salt. In some ways, India has already become a global power. It does tend to confine its activities and define its interests regionally in its own neighborhood. Naturally, region neighborhood comes first. And when you're wedged between two nuclear armed rivals with claims on your territory, uh, you know, it's not surprising that your, your own region is, is foremost at the front of your mind. But, you know, it's now the fifth largest economy in the world and the third largest defense spender in the world. So it spends more on its military than everyone but China and the U.S. And so it in some ways already is a global military power, even if it doesn't have military bases abroad, even if it doesn't conduct the same kind of military diplomacy that the United States does. It is developing the capabilities of a, of a world class military. Um, I do I do expect India to continue this tradition of of trying not to alienate any of the major global powers and to try to maintain at least a working relationship with all, including Russia. Um, it, it, it's it's been navigating this balancing act between getting closer to the United States, closer to the Quad, closer to the vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, while remaining engaged with Russia and China, 
frankly, through BRICS, through the Russia-India-China trilateral meeting. That, in its opinion, is its best-case scenario, you know, enemies to none, friends to all. Uh, What is most likely to change this calculation, what could push India even further away from non-alignment, strategic autonomy, and toward a sort of even closer to the U.S. and taking firmer stands on contentious international issues, I think, is China. China is the most important dynamic variable here. And, you know, if, if China sees it's in its interest to have a better relationship with India and to calm tensions at the border and to pull back some of its support for Pakistan and to limit some of its activities in India's neighborhood, you could see some mitigation of the China-India rivalry. And I think that would maybe weaken some of this shift toward the U.S. and others. But I, I, I find that, frankly, unlikely. And I think it's far more likely that China is going to continue provoking its neighbors, India included, is going to continue, frankly, shooting itself in the foot and continue providing impetus for India to align with the Indo-Pacific democracies. And I think how far that goes depends on how far China pushes. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if, just given the trends of the last few years, if there's yet another border crisis or a naval incident, which moves India off the fence even further. Jeff, this has been outstanding. Thanks for taking the time to break down all things India and for joining us today on Fault Lines. Thank you so much, John. Love to come back sometime. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurityinstitute.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsek. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Klobar for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 